please join me for the reading of our scripture this morning, taken from Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. And I'll be reading from the ESV. Please read along with me if you're able. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asi Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Greetings, EBF family. Pastor Tim here. It's so excited to be able to open up God's Word for us here this morning. And excited, too, about the events coming up next weekend as we gather as a church family for our member meeting on the 24th. And then for the events on the 25th, it's just a hum, humble, uh, humbling privilege to be commissioned as a pastor and also to uh, engage in that welcome celebration as well, or reception. So we look forward to seeing as many of you as we possibly can over the course of next weekend. But we are in a series right now called God's Gracious Gospel, and we, as we have been exploring the birth of the church in Ephesus, particularly in Acts 18 through 20. And where we're going to go next is then into the letter to the church in Ephesus, focusing on our unity in Christ in the book of Ephesians. And so I would encourage all of us to be reading and rereading and soaking and marinating in the book of Ephesians over the next few weeks in preparation for our time together. And by the way, finally, at the end of our series, we're going to then look at the challenge to the church in Ephesus in that challenge, especially in Revelation 2, about how they have lost their first love. But here in Acts, we see this great sweeping theme in Acts of the unstoppable advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit through his faithful witnesses, all according to the sovereign plan of God. Paul here is nearing the end of his three-year ministry in Ephesus, and we have seen Paul raising up co-laborers in the gospel, deploying them, sowing seeds of God's gracious gospel, strengthening disciples in their newfound faith. Uh, in one kind of peculiar episode, helping some disciples of John the Baptist become full-fledged disciples of Jesus Christ. He's also helped, uh, we've seen him speak boldly, reason, and persuade people about the kingdom of God, and also teach tirelessly in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, um, engaging in dialogue and impacting what would essentially be the entire province of Asia, impacting the entire region, both Jews and Greeks, as the gospel continued to advance and cross uh, ethnic lines, and as we see then the power of the gospel going forward. In fact, last week in Acts 19, 10 through 20, we encountered five power encounters. The power of the living triune God confronted a city that was enmeshed in magic and preoccupied with the occult. We saw how God's miraculous power was on display in and through Paul's life, how he confronted some individuals who attempted to hijack the true source of power, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how many confessed and repented of their former way of life as they came to faith in Jesus Christ, continued in their discipleship, they confessed and repented of their former way of life. What an, a vivid scene of, of taking magical scrolls and books and, and piling them up and lighting them on fire at great economic loss to themselves. We also saw how the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Uh, another way of saying that there in verse 20, chapter 19, verse 20, is that the word of the Lord continued to increase and grow in power. And the bottom line that we saw is Jesus is not some spiritual power that we can bottle up, manipulate, or control for our own use. He is the risen Savior and sovereign Lord that we should worship wholeheartedly and serve open-handedly. Today we turn our attention to the last vivid picture of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, particularly in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, for having read that passage for us already. But would you join with me in a word of prayer? 
Our Father, in this time, we ask that you might speak to us, challenge us, renew our hope, remind us of your life-giving gospel. And Lord, would you use this this vivid scene here, God, to, to challenge us in our own lives, God, the idols that we hold in our heart, the idols that we see in the culture around us. And Lord, would you propel us moving forward to confront these idols and to also bring your gospel to bear on the culture around us. Lord, may we hear your words afresh. May we not simply um, pay assent to them, but Lord, would they transform us from the inside out. Lord, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This story is one of the most fascinating and vivid and compelling stories in all of Paul's ministry, perhaps even in all of the book of Acts too. We feel the tension of the story. We, we sense the swell of anger and we wait with bated breath to see what will happen, what will become of Paul and his companions in the midst of this, in the midst of this scene, chaotic scene, and we then breathe a sigh of relief as the mob action comes kind of to a screeching halt at the very end. It's hard not to read a story like this too against the backdrop of the demonstrations and riots that we've seen play out this year, but there are dramatic differences in the story that we're going to encounter here today, and particularly with this riot, not only in its origin and also its duration, but then also how it comes to a conclusion as well. Perhaps one of the most unique features of the story, though, is that it actually doesn't include one of Paul's speeches, one of Paul's messages. We might expect him in the midst of this to get up and to have this long speech recorded, but that's not what Luke gives us here. Instead, the summary of Paul's message is found on the lips of a man named Demetrius, a silversmith of all people, who says, God's made with hands are no gods. I can think of no better encapsulation of what Paul preached than that statement right there. God's made with human hands are no gods at all. As we go through uh, this story here this morning, we're going to encounter three parts to the story. First, the source of the riot, then the span of the riot, and then the screeching halt to the riot. Before we get into that, though, we're going to look at kind of the first two verses that form an outline of the rest of Paul's ministry, really, in the book of Acts. And so we're going to explore the story first and then arrive at the bottom line. That is the thrust of this passage, the truth of this passage as it relates to us today here in the 21st century, and then also consider or be challenged by several takeaways. Uh, if you Maybe uh, to peel back the layers a little bit, one way of understanding this would be the acronym SPA. I know it's not a great acronym, but SPA, so Story, Point, Application. Story, Point, Application. We're going to look at the story, the bottom line, and then some takeaways. Let's begin, though, with that. I mentioned those those first two verses provide, in many ways, an outline of the rest of Acts. We might call this section, Paul Resolved in the Spirit. The, The phrase, now after these events, points back to what had just taken place in the previous story as as people, uh, believers in Jesus Christ, uh, engaged in or were felt uh, convicted and called to repent of their previous way of life. And they, they burned those scrolls, those magic books. And this must have caused 
quite a stir in Ephesus, particularly among those who engaged in this trade where this was quite lucrative, relied on the sale of such things for, for their li very livelihoods. And this dovetails then into what we're going to encounter here as well. That phrase, though, resolved in the spirit here, reminds us of how Paul had a resolve or a determination that he then places before God to see if it is from the spirit. I, can, I can't think of a greater example. Well, there's lots of examples, but this is a, this is a great example of, of where human responsibility and God's sovereignty comes together. Where Paul is resolved, he is determined to do something, but he lays it before God to see if it is, if it is from his spirit. Paul's resolve, though, to pass through Macedonia, Achaia, Jerusalem, and then finally to Rome provides an outline, like I've said, for the rest of the book of Acts. And it has similarities with, with Jesus' drive to Jerusalem that we see in Luke 9.51 in, in particular. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so in, in a similar way, Paul, when he says, I must see Rome, he is conscious of the necessity that is before him. He is conscious of the necessity of God's leading him to this place, leading him to Rome, and to faithfully proclaim the gospel there. Having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, here is a reminder of Paul's constant sending and receiving of co-laborers, co-workers, but one unique factor here in these verses is that these are individuals who ministered to him. They ministered to him in his time of need. And he, here he is sending them out to continue that work. While Paul then stayed in Asia, that is the province of Asia, for a little while longer, rounding out or filling up the remainder of those three faithful, thorough, gospel-centered years of ministry in Ephesus. He alludes to those three years then in, in Acts 20, verse 31. We might actually wonder at this point why Luke interrupts the narrative of these stories, these power-packed stories in Acts 19, to give us these two verses outlining Paul's further advance. And I think, there, I think there's a, a key reason for that. It very well could be that he wanted to show that Paul was already resolved in the spirit to move on and to go to Jerusalem. Actually, one of the things that we know he did was to take a collection to the church in Jerusalem from some of these outlying churches that, were, that had been recently planted. But he's resolved to, in the spirit to, to do so before the events that we're about to read about. And so we're, the way that Luke paints the scene, it's almost as though uh, we shouldn't have this sense that Paul leaves because he's like, uh, you know, leaving with his tail between his legs or feeling somehow forced out of Ephesus. No, he was already resolved to go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. Let's take up the story, though, the first part of the story here, the source of the riot in verses 23 through 27. When Luke uses this phrase, no little disturbance here, it's an idiom that actually means a great disturbance. There's a, there's a similar idiom that comes up along the way too, but <clears throat> this disturbance here is concerning the way, that is Christianity, the, the Christian movement that is grounded in He who is the way, the truth, and the life. And here we are introduced to this man named Demetrius, a silversmith who, whose trade was making 
uh, silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis, as we know, was a Greek goddess worshipped especially in Asia Minor, although there were then uh, shrines to her in 33 other locations that we know of, 33 other locations in the known world at the time. She was the goddess of the moon, the hunt, and fertility. And that fertility of the ground, or even of good harvest, also meant that she became the goddess of financial prosperity. We might even say the goddess of business. That plays actually very significantly into the stories we see. But There was a temple to Artemis that was located just outside of Ephesus. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world had pillars 60 feet high and was 425 feet by 225 feet. So even much larger than an American football field, for instance, and the largest building in the Greek world at the time. This Demetrius, though, made or formed or fashioned these silver shrines that were essentially replicas of the Temple of Artemis. They were used not only as souvenirs, but also as home altars, to the goddess, as well as then uh, artifacts or, or uh, implements used to then present to the goddess in the temple. And when he says no, or when, when the text here says, says no little business, again, that's another one of those idioms that means a great deal of business. This was quite a lucrative business for Demetrius. This was a, a source of great wealth. And so what he does here is he takes action and gathers the workmen in, in similar trades. And these, these members of the same trade united at this time to form what, we, what were called guilds. These guilds would set standards for their trade. They would unite to defend their common economic interests. Picture, for instance, uh, the Ephesian Chamber of Commerce, you know, coming together to hear about this threat, this threat to their prosperity. And what he does here is he lays out essentially two arguments. The first having to do with profit, and the second having to do with the undermining of Artemis. But that first argument, profit. People coming to faith in Christ was actually causing a recession in the idol-making business. The focus here, first and foremost, is on the economic loss. The economic loss. And clearly, the real pro- this was the real problem in his eyes. It was, it was bad for business. It was hurting his livelihood. And an economy, this was an economy that depended upon, essentially, the industry of idolatry. The industry of idolatry. And so connected with this first argument, a prophet is, in many ways, the idol of greed. The second argument, then, is this whole notion of turning from gods and undermining Artemis. Verse 26 is really key to this entire scene. Actually, really the whole story, but verse 26, he says, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Demetrius here recognizes that Paul is engaging in reasoning and persuading He recognizes, too, the the far-reaching impact of Paul's ministry, not only in Ephesus, but throughout the entire region. People are turning away from gods. And also, he recognizes the teaching that gods made with hands are not gods. This is a a one-line summary 
really, of Paul's preaching against idolatry like he does in Athens. If you, if you flip back one or two pages, depending on your Bible, I suppose, uh, back to Acts 17, starting in verse 22, we see Paul vividly preaching against idols in Athens. Let's follow along with me here. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is an example of Paul's preaching against the idols that we see here in uh, Acts 17. We also see that play out in Acts 14, Acts 16 as well. But Demetrius essentially encapsulates that whole notion, that whole speech that Paul gives against the idols by saying that man-made gods are no gods at all. To this, Demetrius adds other accusations that are intended to stir the pride of the people and to essentially play to their fears, particularly their fear of loss. He appeals to their loyalty to Artemis, and he presents this as a very threat to her honor. In Ephesus, the, the economy the religion and civic pride were all bound up together in the worship of Artemis. And so here Demetrius is essentially heaping up these arguments or piling them on in a way that is designed to inflame the mob. So look then at part two, the span of the riot in verses 28 through 34. Demetrius' argument caused his fellow guild members to become enraged and they begin crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They spill into the streets. The city is thrown into confusion, and they make their way to the theater. A theater whose ruins you can still view would seat, could seat as many as 25,000 people. Along the way, they grab two of Paul's companions, Gaius and Aristarchus. But Paul himself is, is prevented from going in among the crowd, even though as he would have liked He's prevented from doing so by some of the, this community of disciples, these, these brand new believers in Jesus Christ. Even some Asiarchs, as we might call them, high-ranking officials uh, in the province of Asia, urge him not to go in, showing that Paul, in this time, had some wealthy and influential friends in Ephesus who were sympathetic and wanted to protect him. It's possible that the gospel had even reached some of the higher echelons 
among the, the leaders of the city. Luke, though, adds this, this spectacular and actually kind of a humorous detail in verse 32 when he writes, Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. It's not entirely clear, though, this individual that comes up, this man named Alexander, it's not entirely clear what his role is in all of this, but it is likely that he was put forward by the Jews to try to defend or distance the Jewish community from the events that were taking place. But he's left with no opportunity to address the crowd as they go on for two hours, as Luke notes, shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine shouting, Great are the Bears of Chicago for over two hours? Or, Great is the United States of America for two hours? The German theologian Hanschen once said, in the final analysis, the only thing heathenism can do against Paul is to shout itself hoarse. Here's part three, the screeching halt to the riot then in verses 35 through 41. Enter the town clerk, the city's top civic official, much like, say, a powerful city manager today. And this town clerk represented the city then to the Roman provincial officials that were also headquartered in Ephesus. He is successful in quieting the crowd and begins by appealing to the, the city's unique role as the guardian of the temple of Artemis. He references the sacred stone that fell from the sky, most likely a, a meteorite of some, for, of, of some form that fell that may have even looked like or um, be similar to the goddess of uh, Ar Artemis, and a, a stone that was then set up in the very temple itself. He reminds the crowd, though, that these things are undeniable. He urges them to not do anything rash, and actually defends Paul, defends Paul as not having done anything against the law. He does not deny Demetrius's concerns. Instead, he says, essentially, he's saying, there's a process for this. Take it up in court. There's a process for this. And so if anyone might be charged with the crime, it would actually be the crowd for engaging in unlawful assembly. This is an important detail here because if they weren't careful and if word got back to the Roman provincial authorities, Ephesus could be in danger of losing their free city status. And I think this town clerk was very concerned that that not happen. Hearing, though, this well-reasoned and level-headed counsel, the crowd is the crowd is dismissed peacefully. The story almost ends in a whimper when you're, when you're reading it. Nothing is said about any further legal action. We're left with the conclusion, though, that Paul and his followers had, had broken no laws. No further action is taken against them. Ajith Fernando points out that Luke saw this event as another victory for the cause of the gospel. In his estimation, the existing legal system if properly administered, could be relied upon to give Christians a fair trial. And so what are we to make of this, this remarkable, tension-filled, thought-provoking story? We may, we may seem somewhat removed from these events ourselves, but what are we to make of this, and how does it intersect with our lives here in the 21st century? Well, as Paul ministered the gospel... He not only persuaded people over time, but he also identified and exposed idols, idols of the heart, 
idols of the culture and called people to turn away from those idols and toward the one true and living God with the result that the economy, culture, and region were, were affected, were radically transformed by the gospel. If we too aim to proclaim and practice the gospel in such a way that lives are changed and the culture is transformed, we too must persuade people over time. Identify and expose both heart and cultural idols and call people to turn away from idols toward the one true and living God. That is the bottom line simply for us this morning. If we aim to proclaim and practice the gospel in such a way that lives are changed and the culture is transformed, we must persuade people over time, identify and expose both heart and cultural idols, and call people to turn away from idols and toward the one true and living God. In our takeaways here, I'd just love to, love to break that down for us and, and have us think about some more of the practical applications of that. First, this whole notion of persuading people of the gospel over time. There are so many examples of this in Paul's ministry, but even here, just in Ephesus alone, in his ministry in the gospel, we find him speaking boldly, reasoning and persuading people of the kingdom of God. In the lecture hall of Tyrannus, we find him engaging in daily dialogue, reasoning, dialogue. And part of what Demetrius complained about in the first place was that Paul had persuaded, persuaded, there it is again, and turned away a great many people. Paul didn't share the gospel in some quick, canned, or take it or leave it kind of way. I couldn't help but think about uh, early on in 2019, I had the privilege of being in Lebanon, uh, also with uh, a, fellow, a fellow pastor at the time and some, with some other teammates, and ministering to and being among Syrian refugees in the Bekaa Valley. Had the wonderful privilege, too, to be able to, to, be able to share God's grace and forgiveness and love with them and to unpack, unpack the gospel. And I remember this larger-than-life gentleman who was our translator, translator at the time, who uh, when, when we would share just a simple phrase or what we might view as a simple phrase or a simple Christian truth, he translated it, what would seem like a short sentence, he would take paragraphs and paragraphs to translate. Why? Because it took so much unpacking, particularly for people who these concepts were so foreign to them. It was not simply a four spiritual laws. It was more like 40 baby steps that needed to take place. And I just remember being so um, affected by that or, or reminded of how, uh, for, this, for this translator in particular, his aim was to give people simply one kernel of truth, one kernel of truth to wrestle with and to consider and to kind of turn in their own minds as over time they were exposed to and persuaded of the life-giving message of truth, of the truth, the gospel. So similarly for us, may we not engage in just quick or canned or emotional ways of engaging or, or, or giving the gospel in kind of a take it or leave it type of way. May we, like Paul, persuade people over time. May we be willing to do that more difficult work over time in people's lives. John Stott points out 
He writes, our evangelism tends to be too ecclesiastical. How he explains that is inviting people to church. Whereas Paul also took the gospel out into the secular world. Too emotional. He explains that as appeals for decision without an adequate basis of understanding. Whereas Paul taught, reasoned, and tried to persuade. And too superficial. That is, making brief encounters and expecting quick results. Whereas Paul stayed in Corinth and Ephesus for five years, faithfully sowing gospel seed and in due time reaping a harvest. Second takeaway for us to consider is that of identifying and exposing both the heart and cultural idols that we encounter. Identify and expose the idols of the heart and culture. The way that we see that identifying and exposing is just in this simple phrase. Uh, identifying by saying God's made with human hands and then exposing are no gods. Identifying God's made with, God, God's made with human hands and then exposing are no gods. Many people today may receive Christ or make a decision for Christ, but live in a way that is virtually indistinguishable from the world around them. Why? I believe partly it's because their idols have not been confronted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must search our hearts and search our city. Asking God to identify idols and to expose them, uncover them, unmask them for what they really are. Simply things that try to supplant or usurp the true role of God in our lives. The reality is that every individual, every culture, every race, every class or location, geographical location has its own set of idols. Why? If it is not based on the glory of God, there will be some other created thing in its place. And we see that all over the place. You know, we might approach a, a text like this and think, hey, we don't bow down to idols anymore, like perhaps they did in the first century. And I would just have to respond to that. I, I beg to differ. Physical idolatry is merely an expression of what is even more deep-seated, and that is what we might call soul idolatry, which is a lot more common, really. Anything, anything can be made into an idol. One of the metaphors used in the Old Testament for idolatry is the whole notion of spiritual adultery. You don't have to look very far in the prophets, particularly in Jeremiah and Hosea, to, to come face to face with that reality. Idolatry as spiritual adultery. We love, love our false gods and commit spiritual adultery with them. Might be good just to consider briefly what is an idol. Think about some other created thing that we look to to give us essentially what only God can give us. Anything in our life that becomes so central that we feel like we can't have meaning, we can't have purpose in our life if we lose it, chances are it is an idol in our lives. What are some of the idols that we see around us? Perhaps idols in our own heart or idols in the culture around us. Some examples are money, greed, even here as, as it is played out in this story. Power. What about intelligence or test scores, grades? degrees? Or how about career, advancing in a particular company or in, or in a field? We might idolize achievement or critical acclaim. 
it pains to say this, but we might idolize family or even children, the very success of our children, for instance. We can idolize romantic relationships, entertainment, patriotism, nationalism, government, political parties, particular political candidates. We might idolize things like tolerance or inclusiveness, progressivism. We might idolize a particular social cause. We can even, at times, idolize truth. That is, holding up the rightness of our doctrine rather than the one to whom it points. We can idolize religion or religiosity, perhaps, our own morality. And maybe this one hits a little close, um, close to home for me, but we can idolize ministry success. There is good in some of these things, but it can be an idol if it becomes an ultimate thing. If, if you realize that you can't live without it, if this particular political candidate loses and it causes you to go off the deep end, or if you look to certain things for meaning and value, if you view them as the ultimate thing, essentially taking the form of deity in our lives or in our culture, chances are it is an idol. There was a God for just about everything in ancient times. Why? Because anything can be a God. It is no accident that idols, no idols, is the first commandment. Martin Luther points out that you never break commandments 2 through 10 without breaking commandment 1 first. Oh, church, we must identify and expose the idols not only of our hearts, but of the culture surrounding us as well. And finally, let us call people to turn away from idols toward the one true and living God. 1 Corinthians 14 verses 6 through 8 says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father." from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Christians who have had their idols identified and exposed and are so gripped by the one true living God should look very different from the decaying culture around us. Just as Christians in Ephesus lived lives of such distinctiveness that it changed the, the economy, so Christians transformed by living out the gospel should affect entire industries, economies, cultures, and regions. Love to bring it home for us here. Paul was willing to risk his life. If you think about it here for, for a moment, Paul was willing to venture into the arena. He was willing to risk his life to defeat the rulers and authorities, the evil spiritual forces who actually use idols to control us. But what happened? He was actually prevented from entering the arena and was spared. Jesus was willing to do the same. He was willing to enter the arena and it cost him his very life. In his death and resurrection, he utterly defeated the idols and the evil spiritual forces that wield them. Jesus Christ is our true bridegroom who took the punishment that we deserved, 
the punishment that we deserved as spiritual adulterers, as idolaters. He took the punishment that we deserved so that, as Romans 3.26 reminds us, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. May the gospel, may this gospel truth be pressed more and more into our very lives. And may it transform us from the inside out. And as we proclaim and practice the gospel in such a way that lives are changed and the culture is transformed, may we do so persuading people over time, identifying and exposing not only the idols of the heart, but the idols of the culture, and call people to turn away from idols toward the one true and living God. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, as we reflect upon this passage, not only in our own lives, perhaps even in our ethos communities throughout this week, oh God, would you reveal in us the idols of our heart. Expose them for what they are and turn us completely and solely to you. Father, would you reveal, would you identify and expose the idols in our church the things that we look to, to, the things that we have held up or we have tried to make primary. Father, would you, would you identify and expose the idols in the community around us? Father, would you be, help us to be mindful of, of these things? Help us as we minister the gospel to do so in a way that challenges those idols, calls people to abandon those idols and to turn to you, our one true and living God. Father, may you be honored and glorified. And would you raise up such a community of disciples, not only in Evanston and beyond, that entire cities and cultures and regions, nations are transformed. Economies challenged, God. We ask that you would do this for your glory and your honor above all else. And would you find us faithful, God, to that very task? We know that we cannot do this without your life-giving spirit, your spirit who is truth. And so we ask, Lord, that you might fill us, empower us, and use us as your instruments of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.